Oh, if you guys have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up Revelation chapter 14. And uh, we will be taking a look again. If you remember from last time, we talked briefly about the idea that the way that John writes is like people write music. It's more of a symphony than a chronology. So when we look at Revelation, what happens is we'll go so far. You'll remember we had uh, seven letters to seven churches, right? And then we, we had this, uh, like, a, like a chorus, where we go up into heaven, we see the church in heaven, we see uh, the work that God's doing, then we come to seven seals. We have six seals, and then we have another chorus, where John kind of looks back over the six seals. We had six uh, trumpets, and we had another chorus before the seventh trumpet, as, as he's going back over the events and the things that have happened so far. So that's where we find ourselves, in one of those parenthetical sections, if you will, in the book of Revelation. So in Revelation chapter 14, when we look at this chapter, this chapter is kind of a unique chapter as we, as we take a look at it. The, it's divided into three sections. And each section starts with, I looked or I saw. So three times you're going to see, I looked, I looked, or I looked, or I saw. Three times. It's in uh, verse 1, verse 6, and verse 14. So 1 through 5 is a section, 6 through 13 is a section, and then 14 to the end of the, of the chapter. And then when we look at the last two, where we'll find ourselves in the middle one tonight, we look at the last two, the other unique thing that they have is messages from angels. So we're going to hear a message from uh, three different angels, and we're going to hear a voice from heaven tonight as we take a look at this section. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion, the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worship the beast in its image and receives the mark on its forehead or on its hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives a mark of his name, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, we lift this section of Scripture to you, Lord. We pray, God, that you would <coughs> open up our eyes and our hearts to receive that which you have for us. For even though, uh, even as we look at these uh, uh, prophecies for the future, future events that we see unfolding, God, we recognize that there's something there for us. There's an application and an exhortation, a challenge for us to, uh, to continue the work that God has begun in us and through us. Lord, we pray that you make us sensitive to what the Spirit has for us tonight as we give you praise 
In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it starts with the proclamation of an gospel. A gospel. Do you see it? The proclamation of a gospel. There's no definite article here. It's not the gospel. It's, it's a gospel. It's a proclamation of good news. Right? That's what gospel means. Euangelion. It means good news. The good news, usually in apocalyptic literature, there's no good news. So this is kind of one of the things that sets Revelation apart. Because Revelation has good news. There's, there's the gospel sewn in. And what I want you to see about this gospel, we'll take a look at in just a minute, but I want you to see this is a gospel, same, the same thing for which men are condemned in Romans chapter 1, is what's being declared here in Revelation 14, uh, and the call for men to, to uh, be obedient to that. So let's look at it. Verse 6 again, I saw another angel flying directly overhead. That word another is the word alos, means another of the same kind. We're not dealing with a different kind of angel Something strange, it's just another, like, like the angels we've looked at in, earlier in chapter 14. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. Now, who is this gospel going to? Everybody, right? Is there, is there a place where the gospel doesn't, is it, isn't for? Is there a person that the gospel doesn't, doesn't reach? The gospel is for every nation, every tongue, Everywhere under the, on the earth, all around the earth, we have this angel proclaiming an eternal gospel. He's going to describe it in just a minute. But as he does, what I want you to see, a lot of times when we look at the book of Revelation, we, can, we need to be careful about being, got to be careful how I say this, um, too literal. Now, will I say this doesn't have to be an angel actually flying around proclaiming the gospel like a loudspeaker around the earth? Sure, it, I won't say it can't be, but I will say that when mankind functions on earth, there's a supernatural reality going on tonight, right now. There's probably spiritual battle happening in this room. There are probably angels battling with demons just for control of our minds, our thoughts, our ability to focus on what's going on, right? We can, I mean, if we think about it, we can recognize that reality in our own life, right? <coughs> so the idea that John's being able to see these angels, three of them, that have three messages as they fly around the earth. And that message, I believe, is going to be proclaimed to the people through the 144,000 we just talked about last week. The 144,000, remember, are flesh and blood, right? 12,000 each of the 12 tribes of Israel that have been sent to be God's messengers around the world. God's going to supernaturally protect them and take care of them. And I think some of the symbolism that we look at tonight is the empowerment of those 144,000, the angels flying in the heavens. If you, if you like it better that it's, that it's an angel flying like a loudspeaker proclaiming a gospel, I'm, a fine, I'm fine with that. The end result for both of us is the same, right? The end result is, I would say the 144,000 are going to reach the whole earth, and you say the angel's going to reach the whole earth. Either way, what happened? The whole earth got reached with the gospel, okay? So this angel going with an everlasting gospel, and I want us to see that it's to everyone, every tribe, every nation, every people. He said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So when we look at it, there's two messages right here, right? This gospel that's going to reach all the nations. I remember Jesus said this. 
In Matthew 24, listen to what he said, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world (coughs) as a witness, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now keep in mind, that proclamation. What's that proclamation? Well, the two parts. The first part is God's judgment has come, so fear God. It's the hour of His judgment. Everything else has been future for that. Now, that's no longer future. Here, here is the judgment of God. The judgment of God being poured out. And secondarily, the second thing that we see, that worship Him who made the heavens and the earth. Now, it's the same thing. Romans chapter 1 tells us that everybody knows. Everybody on earth has a knowledge of God, but He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they don't know that God exists. It's their refusal to worship the God they know exists. Romans chapter 1 tells us that very clearly. It says, God has shown it to them, so that they are without excuse. Right? Who are you, O man? In fact, Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. In other words, they exchanged the reality of God for anything else. And and we see that in our world today, don't we? In our world today, aren't they willing to exchange the, the truth of God for just about anything else? I mean, pretty much, if you could, uh, you can engage just about any other person on the face of the earth as long as you don't engage them with jesus christ you engage them with jesus christ and all of a sudden man that's a strong hard dividing point if you haven't experienced it i i encourage you come join us we'll give you the experience so that you can see it with your own eyes to see that reality taking place when that's what he's saying so this gospel is fear god god's judgment has come it's time to turn and worship god Now remember, in chapter 13, we were introduced to really three beasts, right? One, the great dragon, who is Satan. So we got Satan. And the second beast that came up, you remember the second beast we often look at as the Antichrist? I said it's a a political system in rebellion against God, the fourth beast. Political system in rebellion against God, through which Antichrist comes. The, The next beast that came up, remember that beast? was a false religious system that comes up to empower, is powered by the beast and, and also leads mankind to rebel against God. So when we look here, Revelation chapter 14, the, the, the declaration of this angel, this, this eternal, everlasting gospel is, fear God because His judgment will come and He's the one who should be worshipped. But men are all at that point in time, from, that, from this point forward, really cr- chronologically, are going to be facing a decision. And that decision has eternal ramifications. When, when a man chooses or makes a decision to reject Jesus Christ as his Savior, that's eternal. That's eternal. And when they worship the beast, or they take the number on their forehead or the hand, remember what that symbolizes. More than whatever that number is going to be, and if it's a tattoo or a, or a computer implant... It, Irregardless, what it really means is you've given yourself as, as material to the devil's ownership. You're giving yourself to the devil. If you give yourself to God, what's the scripture say? He writes his name on your forehead. Remember we talked about that, uh, the, the toy story, Andy writing on Woody? 
His name showed ownership. The same idea. So there's a, a worship choice that occurs when they worship the beast that makes them belong to him. And what's this gospel that's being presented? Don't do that. Don't do that. That choice, you don't get to come back from. That choice is, uh, is a choice to reject God fully and completely. And so, this gospel message goes to mankind. It goes out to them all. So that's the first thing we see, this, this proclamation of the gospel. So again, I like to see it as the, the means of that being accomplished through the 144,000, that that's the purpose, that's what they're going to do. Then we have the second angel. The second angel comes on, verse 8. Another angel. So again, another is a word, allos, another of the same kind, nothing special, same kind of angel, <clears throat> as we've already seen. A second following and saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now if you remember when we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, I told you the Bible really tells us a story of two cities. It's like a tale of two cities. And the symbolism in those two cities can confuse us because we start thinking geographically. Okay, So for a moment I just want you to turn off your, your geography for a minute and just think what these two cities mean. Jerusalem is a city submitted to God. Babylon is a city in rebellion to God. There's really only two camps you get to be in. You're either in rebellion against God, in which case Babylon is your home, your hometown, or you're submitted to God, in which case Jerusalem is your hometown. Okay? And when we look at this, we're going to be struck with a couple of, uh, of options about where who is Babylon. Is this really Babylon, the city Babylon, which is in the middle of the desert in Iraq somewhere? <coughs> which really the Bible tells us uh, is not ever going to be rebuilt again. Is it symbolize another city somewhere? Is it another city? Is there another city yet future that's going to be built that's going to be the seat of power? Well talk a little bit more about it when we get to chapter 17 because chapter 17 is going to deal a lot with the fall of Babylon but what I really want you to grasp from it is the fall of Babylon is the utter uh, abolition of rebellion against God when Babylon falls the rebellion against God is over and that's what the proclamation of this angel is that the rebellion is coming to an end. How is it coming to an end? God is judging. God is bringing His judgment. His wrath will be poured out. And at the conclusion of His wrath, there will be no more rebellion. The rebellion is over. The rebellion is over. Now we have the kingdom. We have salvation. We have restoration that we'll be looking at. So when we look at it, I just want you to kind of get this idea. Now I'm going to give you all the possible views of Babylon. Because my view is by no means the only one. <laughs> there are other views, but I tend to see it could be any city. It speaks of mankind's rebellion against God. And I think it'll be a, a literal place, but maybe there will be multiple ones because there's a lot of places around the world in rebellion against God, uh, ultimately. So, so there's possible, there's some who say it refers to Jerusalem, that Babylon is Jerusalem. Now remember I told you it's not about geography, right? 
So if it's not about geography, and it's about rebelling against God, has Jerusalem ever rebelled against God? Yeah, we don't have a hard time connecting that dot, do we? One of the reasons people will point to Jerusalem is because it, the city is called Babylon the Great, and the city in the Bible, which is called the Great City, is Jerusalem. It's, it's called that twice. So we look at Revelation 11.8. Remember when we talked about the two witnesses that said that their bodies will lie in the street of the great city. What great city was that? That city symbolically, it tells us in verse 8, is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside of Jerusalem, right? So symbolically, the book of Revelation says Jerusalem is like Sodom and Egypt. And what does that mean? Sodom and Egypt, what, what, what would mark them? Specifically, you could say rebellion against God, couldn't you? Rebellion against God. <coughs> the idea that Egypt is a picture of the world or the flesh, and certainly Sodom could be as well. But I think it's easy just to see them as, as a, a, the city rebelling against God. Revelation 21.10 says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Again, it's called great, but this is the new Jerusalem. Now this place, this place will never have a liar set foot in it. This place will never have a sinner come through its gates. The new Jerusalem is only going to have those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. They were formerly liars and murderers, but they are no more. Because once the Lord has purged us of our sin, how far away is it? far as the east is from the west. It's a long ways, right? So that's all being cleansed out of it. So <coughs> some people can see Babylon as uh, 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 the city, referring to the city of Jerusalem during the tribulation period. Other times they, they believe it refers to the city of Babylon and that the city of Babylon will be rebuilt. In Jeremiah fifty thirty five, it says, A sword is against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord. And against the inhabitants of Babylon, against her officials and her wise men. So, a sword, there's, there's judgment. Now, oftentimes we see this picture, this picture of Babylon, again, being in rebellion against God. But then, in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 39 and 40, says this, Wild beasts will dwell with hyenas in Babylon. Ostriches will dwell in her. She will never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. So I don't know how Babylon could be rebuilt. I think Babylon's going to stay an old, broken-down city in the desert uh, from now till then. However, the symbolism of Babylon lives on, even post the destruction of Babylon. Others believe it refers to the city of Rome. Now, one of the reasons they believe it refers to the city of Rome, I want you to think about the Babylon is going to be uh, judged, held accountable for the blood of the martyrs. At the time when John wrote this book, uh, about 95 AD, who was the world power killing the Christians? Rome, right? Six million they killed during, during that time of persecution against the church. So when he said Babylon, this city is going to be judged of God, that it's the one shedding the blood of the martyrs, at least for those reading the letter at the time it was written, they're not going to have a hard time saying, <coughs> wow, that he's talking about Rome. 
He's talking about Rome. So some people think it's Rome. Listen to what the scripture says about this city in Revelation chapter 17. It says, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now again, if you are reading this at the time of John, what great city had dominion over all the kings of the earth? Rome did, right? Rome, Rome was the chief power at that time. Revelation 17.2 says, And whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. So the kings of the world, they've all gathered around this particular city. Now, <coughs> so some people think that's pointing or picturing Rome. Revelation 17.5 says, On her forehead was written the name, Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes, and of the earth's abomination. So we'll, we'll jump into that when we get to Revelation 17. But some think it's Jerusalem. Some think it's Rome. Some think it can be a multitude of cities. It just basically stands for people in rebellion against God. I've even heard one guy say it's New York City. So maybe when we read chapter 17, you might, you might think likewise. All I know for sure is the guys who read it after John wrote it weren't thinking in New York City. So, <coughs> so we have to realize that when, this, when the word was given, it was given to them as well as to us, right? So it's got to it's gotta be, it's the, the interpretation has got to fit. It's got to be able to work, I think, in both of those ways. Okay, so the second angel flies through and he says, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. So that city, Babylon, is going to face judgment. The second angel. Now we have the, the third angel. Revelation 14 verse 9. <coughs> Another angel. <coughs> excuse me. A third. Followed them saying with a loud voice. If anyone worships a beast. Its image. Receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. He will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured for full strength. Into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur. In the presence of the holy angels. And in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast or its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. So we have this third. This third angel speaks of a judgment against those who worship the beast. So go back. Think back to the first angel. The first angel gives an everlasting gospel. That everlasting gospel is calling to mankind saying, hey, fear God, his judgment has come. If you look at these other two angels, there are specifically two areas that are being judged. Two areas. One, Babylon, the city in rebellion against God. And two, those who are worshiping the beast. So the warning, I think, coming through each of these angels is part of the message that the 144,000 are going to be delivering around the world, bringing really an untold number of people to salvation through their warning. One of the things we have to recognize in our world today is that it is more loving to warn somebody of impending judgment than it is to allow them to step into it. It would be a horrific thing to say, I don't want to offend them, so I'm not going to tell them that what they're about to do in worshiping the beast is eternal. Right? Wouldn't you want to say... You really want to think about what you're going to do? Because God is going to judge. He's going to judge Babylon, the cities in rebellion against God. And he's going to judge all those who have 
taken the mark of the beast, all those who have counted themselves as disciples of the great dragon. God's going to judge. There's, you need to turn rather from that to worshiping God. <clears throat> so the third angel laying out this idea. Look, there is a punishment that comes as a result of this. And the symbolism is that these guys have given themselves over. You ever met somebody who's given themselves over? Go around, maybe, maybe you've tried to share with them a number of times. There is a... There are those people when you, if you spend time out witnessing and sharing, I'm sure Bill's run into it, Jonathan, uh, some of the other guys who have been out, but you run into a guy that is just like the man of steel. There, nothing penetrates. It's like you just recognize there's something different. There, I, you know, I'm not saying that God can't do miracles. I don't ever try to say what God can or can't do, but I've seen these people that, have given themselves over like they've they've just made their decision and they're not turning back. They're not coming back from from the brink. They're not coming back from that place. And so here you have this warning that there's judgment for that. There's judgment for making those choices. And if we want to understand an explanation of that judgment, drinking the cup of the wrath of God poured out full strength in the cup of indignation or in the cup of his anger, we can get it in Psalm 75. If you flip over to Psalm 75, verse 7 and 8, <coughs> it will tell us this. It is God who executes judgment. Who executes judgment? God. God's the only one who has the right to condemn. Right? Does the Bible call us ever to judge? Look, we make judgments every day. And one of the things we need to be aware of is God calls us to judge ourselves so that we don't fall under judgment. That's a warning that God gives us so that we pay attention to our own heart. We don't believe our own lives, right? That we would judge ourselves, he says, lest you be judged. The idea is that we're not looking, we don't sit in the place of God to condemn others. But we are able to sit in the place of judgment and say, that's sin. That's okay, and I base that on what? The authority of the Word of God. What the Word of God says stands. That's, that's where we where we place ourselves. So God it is who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. Putting down one would be the example of God's judgment falling on one, and another being lifted up, okay, exalted or, or extolled. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The idea is that the wrath of God, will that's going to fall. That if, if mankind does not <coughs> receive the free gift of salvation through his son who drank that cup. Lord, if there be any way for this cup to pass from me. You remember? People say, well, the Bible says, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. It doesn't make any sense that, that God would have his son hang on a tree. Sure it does. The Bible says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He bore the curse upon himself so that the curse might be lifted. So that when the return of the king happens, when Jesus returns... 
There will be no more curse. There will be no more curse on this earth. There will be no more curse in our hearts. Those things will be judged and finished, completed. So we hear, we see this, <clears throat> this judgment of God coming out. And then the punishment, there's something about this punishment that we want to realize. This punishment is eternal. There are a lot of people who say, who have varying degrees or, or ideas about the punishment of God. A lot of people will say, hell is a, a 4th century AD creation of mankind to try to scare people to come into a relationship with God. Well, all I know is I'm reading a book that was written in 95 AD, and, and while it doesn't say the word hell, I can't understand what it's talking about. No? Okay, you don't call it hell. I don't care what you call it. You can call it whatever. It's eternal. Did you see that phrase? It's eternal. How long is eternal? Yeah, it's a long time, right? Well, let me, let me comfort you in this. That word eternal is the same word eternal used of God. So how long does God last? Oh, and that's how long punishment lasts. Same word. Use both places. So we don't, get a, we don't get a limit one without limiting the other. Does that make sense to you guys? That's what that word means across the board. <clears throat> Does God indeed punish forever? <clears throat> and who is he punishing? Here's, the, here's why this is good news. He's telling them before they do it. If you do this, that will happen. That's good news. I prefer to know... If you're going to whack the back of my knuckles with a ruler, what they're getting whacked for. Don't you? Nobody wants a whooping that they didn't know what they was doing was wrong. So God says, he delivers the message to every nation, every place, everywhere under heaven. He delivers it. If you worship the beast or take his mark, then you're going to hell. Period. So you get to hear that before you make that choice. You get to hear it before you make that decision. Now you may still make that de decision because uh, of a heart of rebellion against God. But the good news was God told you before you made the decision. He told you when you could still do something about it. It says in Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. No, you don't want to call it hell, that's fine. You can call it eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Doesn't sound like a good place, does it? Most people don't want to say sign up, I, I want to sign up to be the barbecue. Right? Where, where do you want to spend eternity? I want to spend eternity in fire with the devil and his angels. Nobody who's thinking about what that means. What about Jude 6 and 7? It says, and the angels who did not keep within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in the eternal chains, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of, what's it say? Eternal fire. How long is eternal? Long time, right? <laughs> long time. Jude 6, 7 talks about it. Revelation 20, verse 10. says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night 
forever and how long is that? Long time, right? <clears throat> Revelation twenty fifteen. And if me, and if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. So what we call that? Everybody or a lot of people have a difficult concept grasping hell, but uh, that's the closest thing we got. So that's the word I'm going to use. What do we see from these scriptures? It's described as a place of torment. So not good. It's described as a place of fire and brimstone, which are things that would cause us to be afraid. If we went outside today and fire and brimstone were falling from the sky, trust me, you're not going to have to work up on the concept of being afraid. Afraid is just what's going to happen. Fire and brimstone. The other thing we learned, it's eternal. What is it? It's eternal darkness. It's eternal torment. It's eternal restlessness. All of those things we see in the text that we have before us and the one that we just look at. So it is an eternal (coughs) punishment that the Word of God teaches for those who have rejected the salvation of Jesus Christ. And before they do that, during the tribulation period, God's going to warn every single one. You remember I told you the six seals were opening, the seals were beginning, the period of time known as the wrath of God, the the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Then we have six trumpets, and trumpets are used for what? Warning, warning, warning. Why? Because it's going to get worse. There's worse things coming. And part of that warning, warning, warning are the 144,000 going around the world to every tribe, nation, and tongue telling them what? Not to, don't follow the beast, fear God, and worship Him. So they're not without the opportunity to hear. The message is going forth. But then, not only do we see those things, but we see the fourth thing. We have had three <coughs> angels speak, now we're going to have a voice from heaven. It says in verse 12, Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now right here we have what the characteristic of a saint is. Now remember I told you, when we look at Scripture, the word saint is going to be used of at least three different groups of people who are all saved the same way through the blood of Jesus Christ, but they're all distinct. They're separate. They're, they're one in the sense that they're all saved by Jesus Christ, but they're distinct. They're, they aren't each other. The Old Testament saints, the church saints, and the tribulation saints, all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they all have this concept together. What makes up a saint? They are a keeper of the commandments of God. Remember that word keep. I told you what that word keep means. It's someone who treasures, values, guards. It does include the idea of obedience, but not only obedience. The idea that you value what's being said. Do you treasure the commandments of God? The things that God has taught us. Jesus said, go into all the world. Right? Make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teach them the things that I have commanded you. So, Jesus is, according to John 1.1, He is the Word who was at the beginning, isn't He? 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus, right? We get to Revelation chapter 19, and He is called God the Word. The Word of God, the one who is returning, so He's the Word of God. Remember when He was talking to the scribes and Pharisees, He said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you seek life, but it is these that speak of Me, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? Who gave all the commandments of God from Genesis to Revelation? Jesus did. Why? He's the Word of God. He's the Word. Are you a keeper of the words of Jesus? A treasurer of the words of Jesus? <clears throat> they were in the Old Testament. <clears throat> they are in the church. They will be in the tribulation. All saved through the blood of the Lamb, but all distinct. Three, yet one. Kind of interesting. But when we look at it, I just want you to see the second characteristic. They all have faith where? In Jesus. How the Old Testament saints have faith in Jesus? Well, they looked forward to the sacrifice, the lamb that symbolized a sacrifice that would take away their sin, right? So they trusted in the revelation of God, looking forward to the lamb of God. The final prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, what did he declare? Finally, before mankind, behold, the lamb of God, which does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Then we enter into the church. The church has faith in Jesus. The tribulation saints, where do they have? Faith in Jesus. Jesus. Keep in mind what Ye- Yehoshua means. Yehoshua. Yeshua. Jesus' name means God is salvation. Right? In the Old Testament, did they believe God was salvation? What about in the church? Do we believe God is salvation? What about in the tribulation period? Will they believe God is salvation? Three groups saved by the same being, <laughs> distinct from each other, but one in the sense that they're all saints. And then he says, <clears throat> I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So we see the condition of the saints. What's the condition of the saints? The Lord declares, blessed are they who die from now on. Blessed are those who die because their battle's over. Remember I've shared with you before that I believe every believer who is not a Jew is going to die during the tribulation period. That there will be a group of Jews that God preserves all the way through. But the rest, they're going to die for their faith. I believe you can say I'm wrong and we'll find out when we get there. But we look at what Scripture lays out for us. What does God say? Oh, how happy is the one who dies. The dead who die. Who die. Why? Because their battle is over. What's the two things that they're going to receive? Now, we just looked at the judgment of God, right? The judgment of God that said eternal torment, eternal restlessness. What what do we see marking these guys? It says that they may rest from their labors. They'll have eternal rest. And... Their deeds will follow them. They have eternal rewards. Eternal rest. Eternal rewards. They have all of these things laid out. 1 Corinthians 3.8 tells us, He who plants and who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. What's that mean? God knows what you've done. Right? Does the Bible tell us that God is keeping track of our deeds, of the things we do? Our deeds don't save us, but our deeds do or are, God does, keep track of those. 
He does, he does follow those. It says in verse 13 of the same chapter, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The description that Paul gives is wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn away. So all the stuff we did out of selfish ambition or whatever possible motivations, that's all going to burn away. But what we've done for the Lord will remain. And that's the reward. I want to remind you that Jesus one day stood at the temple and he watched people giving. You remember? The scripture says Jesus stood and watched, what's the word? How they gave. And a widow came with how much? Two mites. And Jesus said she gave more than everybody. Now what was he declaring? He was declaring what she did, the work that she had done for her love for God... God's not going to forget. And that's gold. Because she did that for the Lord, not for herself. The Lord is going to judge those things. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The things we do for God, does it matter to God? Now, the things we do for God are not always going to make an impact on earth. Do you know that? Do you know that sometimes, no matter how hard you try to do something good for the Lord, it just doesn't work out? You guys have never experienced that? Try as you might. You take off your hat, throw it at the ground, but you can't hit it. And the, the Lord is saying, look, your labor is not in vain for me. God says, your, your labor matters to me. I watched it. I watched it. And that's the important factor, is it not? Colossians 3.24 Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. For you are serving who? The Lord Christ. Their rewards are going to go with them, right? Jesus says, I'm not going to miss anything. I will have seen it all. Whatever you have done for me, you'll receive. God has not missed it. God hasn't, mankind can miss it, but God won't. Listen to this, Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. People might not see it, but God always sees it. So what's he telling these guys? He's saying, look, man, that you guys, the saints, blessed are you who die from now on. You die in the Lord, you go to eternal rest and eternal reward, and God hasn't missed a thing. God didn't miss you giving a cup of cool water in his name, right? That's what the word declares. So as we look at this section of chapter 14, looking back on the events that are, that are happening over the first three and a half years, God is saying, man, look, look, you have need of endurance to continue moving forward doing the work of the Lord. God's not going to miss any of the things you've done. That we also should be carrying forth. It's okay to carry forth the message of the gospel. That God is going to judge mankind. And that if we reject God, that has eternal implications, right? It's okay to do that. To not be so worried about offending someone else that that we're willing to offend the God of the universe, right? To say, nope, I want to be a good witness for him. And to recognize God's not going to miss any of it. And I believe we have a spiritual battlefield all around us. And the same angels that are flying for them, helping to produce that work 
through the image bearers that God is using on earth to bring that message, I think he's doing the same thing for us today. We see little pictures, little hints of it all throughout the Old and New Testament. So we want to take the encouragement that John lays out for us in his word. And we say, look, we don't find ourselves in their time yet, (coughs) but we find ourselves in ours. And the Lord has said, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. It's a time for us to be engaged in our culture, whatever level we can be. Whatever opportunities God may give us to be faithful, to bring the message of the gospel to the lost. And provide for them at least the opportunity to respond. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.